welcome to this week's edition of the In Conversation um, with um, Dr. Nicole Brown. Uh, I'm really excited to have with me another guest from across the pond, this time the other side um, of the world. And um, so it is my afternoon and, and their morning again. Um, and in this case, I have got with me Dr. Meg Collins. Hello, good to meet you. Good to have you here. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Okay, um, I'm a musician and a composer, and I've just completed my PhD uh, last spring at um, Trinity College, Dublin. And my research involves <clears throat> studying a lot of ethnic instruments. Ethnic is a, a word we can use folk, non-traditional, non-Western, each one of them has its own little nuances and sometimes problems, but uh, non-traditional, non-Western orchestra instruments, and I compose compositions for them together with Western orchestral instruments so that both there's a reciprocal influence between the genres. And for example, the Western orchestral instruments might imitate some of the uh, distinguishing characteristics or ornamentation of the non-traditional the traditional non-Western instruments, and the non-Western instruments will be influenced by typical Western European uh, idioms. Thank you very much. I am so excited. I cannot tell you. I am so excited to be talking to a musician and composer um, because um, in that series, we've already heard from Dr. Jasmine Shadrach, who's also a musician and a composer, but her area is heavy metal. So it's very, very different. And, and that's what's really exciting about these conversations is that obviously there are similarities and yet there are radical differences between genres, disciplines, um, and, and obviously I'm hoping to get as much out of, of these conversations in terms of what it means to do practice as research, which brings me to my first question, really. Um, what is your definition of practice as research? Well, you know, as a musician, honestly, I'd like to turn the question on its head, if I may. Uh, well, because musicians are always practicing. It's not a question of whether or not they will include practice in their research. It's more a question of when and how and why they will introduce research into their practice. And so for me in the work that I do, I've written for, as I said, other instruments, for example, Native American flute, the Irish illin pipes, the, the Persian santor. So in writing for those instruments, I don't play the illum pipes or the santor, so I would need to do some research. And this is either experiential by experimenting on the instrument myself or finding um, an expert player in that instrument or reading authoritative texts. But it also involves getting to know about the whole background of the genre to know exactly what is idiomatic to the instrument so that I might know when I'm being non-idiomatic. So I've introduced research into my practice, if I would, if I can turn the question around. Yeah, like of that. course, of course. This is what these conversations are about. So yes, absolutely. Um, can I just ask you one one thing that's kind of come to me now? Um, I'm, I'm I'm not a musician myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do understand a little bit about the process of writing um, in terms of creative writing. And one of the things that I'm always asking myself with creative writing is, you know, which part of the creative writing is the, the kind of the 
made up part, the fiction part, the part that is really just there for the art's sake, and which part is the, the actual research. And I'm kind of asking that same question to you. Is that researching the instrument before you get to play it or before you get to write for it, is that, does that count as research? And how is that different from conventional research or is it a different form of research? I would say that absolutely counts as research. So when I'm working with an instrument that's less familiar to me than Western orchestral instruments, I will first research in the form of listening to as many compositions, research in the form, just like if I were writing for trombone, which is, you know, a Western orchestral instrument, I would learn the positions of all the slides so that I know what I'm asking the trombone player to do. I need to research that before I begin writing. <clears throat> but then as I'm not sure, maybe it's the same in creative writing. Once you begin the process, a lot of it is, uh, as you say, imaginative, creative from thin air, but then you have a toolbox from which to draw, whether it's music theory or um, what kind of idioms within the genre would best um, capitalize uh, on the capabilities of the instrument. So, as you're composing, a lot of times, even if I'm not writing for a non-Western instrument, I'll write something just strictly musically speaking, and then I'm not sure where it's gonna go next. And so then I think, all right, hmm, why does this part work? And that's, then you rely on the research that happened prior or the music theory to say, okay, I know what these chords will create tension and then resolution will happen this way. So, Sometimes I'm a little bit confused between what's the difference between a toolbox, such as music theory, or research, such as investigating the history and the genre. Yes, and that's exactly what I'm really interested in, because, I mean, for example, um, the, the novelist Jodie Bacould, I don't know whether you're acquainted with her work, but um, there's one particular novel that she's written quite recently about um, abortion centres um, and, and, you know, the kind of the pros and cons of abortion centres. And it's obviously fictionalised um, in, in, in many ways. But in order to write that book, she interviewed 144 women. Now, if you asked anyone, um, probably very few people would say that that was research. And yet, on the other hand, you kind of say, you know, well, having interviewed 144 women, you can't really like dismiss that as not being research. So, so where, where is that line? And if you're saying that you're finding that, that line difficult to find, obviously, I'd be like, I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on that. Well, I would say that interviewing um, 140 something women is, is absolutely research, but then your research becomes one of your tools. So it's a very good analogy. If you think about it, she's writing and perhaps she thinks, now what would a woman in this situation say? Then she'll turn to her research in order to give her more of an idea. It's very, very similar to what I do in composition. Is there a difference, though, between that kind of research and the research that you do when you do like a doctoral research? Well, a lot of that research was involved in my doctoral research. And um, it's very easy to present research like saying, oh, Dr. Luigi Ghirlandini has written this article and said this. It's a little bit more um, nebulous when you say, well, I paid someone 50 euros and he came over to my house and showed me all of the stops on the Ellen pipe. 
you know, but that's, that's just like her interviews. And um, yeah, I think it's a matter of making it official by documenting so much of the work I did prior to my PhD was informal. I didn't quite know I was headed in this direction. And then as I was doing my PhD, I thought, oh my gosh, I've been doing research my whole life, uh, right up into this. I just didn't call it that, you know? Is there a difference though between that and that? Because I'm kind of thinking, you know, for in my own mind, one way of, of you know, for an artist before they create something, they do that kind of research, but that may not necessarily need to be systematic because they can kind of, you know, like just follow their gut basically and, and just follow down a train of thoughts that they like and, and experimenting and exploring without there needing to be any kind of consideration of, of the, 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 what makes the form of research and the form of research element has to be kind of more systematic. Is that, is that a thing or not? <laughs> well, of course you can write music without having done research, but um, systematic and, and non-systematic research will always enhance a composition in my opinion. Um, there's a danger, I think, of, of allowing systematic research to flavor your creativity in a way. Um, but one of the advantages would be, let's say you see someone has written uh, something for the Native American flute and you don't think it utilizes all the capabilities of the instrument. You don't think it stretches it beyond idiom. Perhaps that composer didn't have that as a goal, but then you can look at that and say, hmm, that's been done. That's a direction I don't want to go in. Or, or here's another thing that I don't think works. But when you systematically research, I think it can invade your thoughts. Be like, okay, this is what's typically done with the cello. Um, you know, Elgar has done this with the cello, and you know, Bartek has done that with the cello. And so then you start to think that's what's to be done with the cello. Um, so you have to allow your when you're being an artist, creative writing or 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 the fine arts, painting, the studio art, anything. You have to allow your brain to to roam freely uh, about. I'd say more than 50% of the time, if we're going to get systematic in our analysis. <laughs> Can I just ask, I mean, you've, you've kind of talked a little bit about um, how you combine practice and research in your own work, but um, what kind of body of literature do you use to help define and refine that kind of work? Is there anything in particular that you would say, this is, this is your go-to thing? Huh. Well, because the scope of my research is so broad, like for my PhD, I've written for seven different instruments in eight different compositions. So that means that I've researched uh, seven different instruments, the background, the context, the history behind it. So I would refer someone to specific. Um, so like if you're, if you're writing for the Chinese bamboo flute, the Zhao, then you need to read Xinyan Shen. And there will be some writings about um, the Zhao in particular, there'll be more writings about Chinese orchestra or Chinese folk music yeah. in general. But then, so there's like different levels of focus. It could be on the instrument, could be on the entire genre surrounding the instrument, or pull back even a step further. I mentioned Luigi Irlandini. I would refer anyone to him. 
He speaks specifically about writing for the shakuhachi, which is a Japanese bamboo flute, but writes more broadly, what are our responsibilities when we're including a non-Western instrument? Um, so you can, you can look at it like from a broad musicological perspective or ethnomusicological, although that's an othering, the separation of the two disciplines, which is another article. Kim <laughs> talked about the separation of the two disciplines and how it has the effect of othering. Um, so I, I, I could not possibly direct someone to a specific body of literature because uh, I've touched on so many different subjects, but um, there are a great many articles about just writing for non-Western music instruments in general. And I would say Kim and Yolandini you, you, I go to the journals. Is the journal ethnological music and, and world music? Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so when you're talking about this kind of practice as research, where you are, you know, doing your research and then you're going through um, with the compositions and, and writing, um, why do you do that? What, what, I mean, this sounds like a really stupid question, and I apologize for that, but. But what, because we know, like you've just described, how difficult it is, how much reading there is involved, how much, you know, what, what kind of obstacles there are, how, how difficult it is to define that, um, how little recognition sometimes there is for that kind of work. Why do you keep, keep, keep doing it? What, what's what's the, the benefit, if you like, of that kind of work? The benefit of the research or of the kind of composing that I do? Both. Oh, well, I didn't exactly set out with a mission. I'm going to take non-Western instruments and put them into Western orchestral ensembles. But I've traveled a bit, or, you know, and as, as we move about the world, we encounter cultures that are different from our own or different from our upbringing. And these encounters always intrigued me. And I thought, I didn't think that's not uh, Western European or that that's something else. It's just that when I encounter a new instrument, I want to know all about it. And then I saw obstacles to including these instruments in settings outside their, their original context. And so I saw that it needed to be done carefully. And that's where the research actually initially was introduced. What are the considerations that I must um, consider? Um, before I introduce and, and for, I don't know if this is uh, uh, too jargony or whatever, but there's three considerations for me. One is that I need to know the original context and sometimes an instrument will have a ritual or a certain setting associated it. And we have to start from a um, point of departure of respect. And then not all these instruments are tuned in equal temperament. Actually, most of them are not which means that they have a different tuning system from, for example, the piano, where every single key is exactly the same distance apart, interval-wise. They're all a half-step apart. Most non-Western instruments are not like that. So when you put them together, that's very much something to be taken into consideration. And the other thing to be taken into consideration is that people who play Western, non-Western instruments, let's say you're going to engage, I don't play the pipe, so I'll hire somebody they learn and perform music in a very different way from Western European musicians, you know, typical orchestral musicians, because it's often by oral dissemination, or sometimes there's an alternate form of notation, as with Chinese music and Native American music have their own systems of musical notation. So I need to learn 
That's the research. I need to learn those notational systems and decide whether I'm going to require the person that I get to play to read in standard Western European notation or in their own notation. Um, I think I rambled. I'm not sure if I answered your question. No, that's but that's perfect. No, 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 no. You haven't. You haven't at all. I mean, it's just really interesting to hear you talk about um, about that because it kind of transpires straight away what the challenges are of doing that kind of work. Because you know, it's, it's very easy often to dismiss um, anyone who's doing practice as research because it doesn't involve twenty five interviews or three hundred questionnaires. Um, and, and, you know, it's obviously it doesn't kind of fit the traditional mold of what is usually constituted um, or usually constitutes research. And yet here you are talking about actually there is a lot more work involved because I need to to learn the basics first <laughs> before I can do anything else. So, again, it kind of brings you back to the question, if, if there are so many challenges, why are we? Why do, should we keep going with that kind of development? Um, and, and, and I think that's, that's a really, really, really important question. And I think you, you've kind of answered that really nicely by saying, you know, you can't really do that unless you understand the basics. Um, so kind of acknowledging different knowledges as well, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So when I first began my PhD, as I, as I, said a little bit before, I hadn't realized that I'd been doing research my whole life, but the words practice as research were um, mentioned a lot at, during my time at Trinity, and I never quite understood it. And I'd be like, why do I need to present research to tell someone why I composed something? Isn't this a very personal thing? It is very difficult sometimes to put your emotional and creative heart on your sleeve, and then to have to justify it with somebody else's authoritative texts. But <laughs> If you, if you go a little bit earlier on in the process, um, those three considerations I mentioned before are, are, it's simply a matter of being a responsible and respectful and sensitive musician, knowing that I may be treading on somebody else's um, cultural ground. Uh, I don't wanna insert a negative here, but we wanna be very careful not to um, assume a position of cultural appropriation, but rather one of cultural appreciation. So appropriation would be taking something without knowing anything about it and uh, not giving credit where credit is due. And appreciation is, is understanding fully where this instrument came from and what's the usual context and, and then justifying why you would do something different with it. And, and I guess also, like you said, you know, appreciating the kind of the, the tradition that goes on behind behind there as well. Like you said, you know, a lot of these um, non-Western contexts they perform in a way that it got handed down from generation to generation to to actually recognize that the, the the current piece is something that's not just developed within the last ten years or so, but that's you know a, a several lifetimes that are actually sitting here. Yeah, and I, I've noticed it, I'll say with Irish music, for example, there is even a culture of resistance around writing something new for the Illin Pipes, which I don't know, for people not in the UK or Irish context is a, is a kind of an elbow powered bagpipe. Um, so I interviewed uh, many pipers. Okay, there's research. Um, and one of them, the head of the Not Peabody Illin, the Pipers Club, uh, found out what it was doing. And he said, 
why would you do that? We have hundreds of years and, and, and thousands of tunes. Why would you sully the tradition? <laughs> no. So you, I need to know full well that I will encounter people like that. And that in fact, most pipers I approach with this new piece of music will not be able to, I'm not gonna say understand, but even access it because that's yeah. not, it's not typically what they play and, it, and transmitting, you know, yeah. contemporary music by word of mouth is far more difficult than just, it's like relating a novel uh, instead of having someone just read it, you know? Can I just ask you, if you're looking at, you know, the kinds of things that you have been doing with the practice as research and looking at the field um, there is, how would you like to see a practice as research develop um, as a field and, and also in your, in, your own, in your own practice? What do you think are the plans for, for, for practice as research? Well, I think the term is so broadly used that I'm not really in a position to comment other than my personal encounter. With this. So I can't speak for the sciences or for education about their methodology of using practice as, as research. But um, for musicians in general, I think that um, more research and an understanding of where their music came from and where it's headed can only enhance their own expression. Um, one will encounter many, many musicians who don't know the theory behind or the background behind the, the music that they're performing. And, and, and when you encounter a musician that doesn't understand the theory behind what they're playing, I always wonder how is it possible for them to um, fully express what the music has to offer? Because uh, they're just doing it with, without one of, for me, one of the very important tools for interpretation uh, so I think performance can only be enhanced by research. But then there are many different kinds of musicians who are not like me and can, you know, very nicely express something without knowing all the nuts and bolts behind it. But for me, nuts and bolts help. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I think that that's that's really kind of the at, at the heart of, of all of the conversations I've had so far um, with practice as research is that it's often quite difficult to separate the practitioner from the researcher but at the same time there are many people who are practitioners pure practitioners who don't do research so it's really interesting you know on the one hand it's it feels like it's really hard to separate the practitioner from the researcher but then on the other hand we do have people who are not both so there must be somewhere a line where we can say well this is what it means to, to be a practitioner researcher? Well, I think the line must necessarily always be blurred in the field of music uh, because it's not often that you encounter, for example, a person who's a composer and nothing else, just writes and doesn't play an instrument, doesn't conduct, doesn't teach. So, and because of the nature of employment as a musician, many, many musicians have their fingers in several pots. And so, not only is that a, a, you know, just a necessity for how life works, but it's, it's the idea of being a holistic musician. If you don't perform regularly, perhaps you may not be able to understand what it is, what position you're putting 
the people for whom you're writing in, you know, yeah. or if you, if you don't sing, you might not know what you're asking your choristers to do, you know, so all of this is like, you know, like if somebody were to own a restaurant, they started as the busboy, then they did the dishes and they were sous chef and, you know, they know all of the positions, you know, so it's like that in music. So the practice, yeah, all, all the practice turns out to be researched, whatever it is you finally decide in the end, you know. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. I, that was a really, really interesting conversation. Um, I would like to thank you very much for your time, Meg. It's really, really great to have you here. Um, if anyone um, is listening in, um, please do check out the um, YouTube channel and, and the Buzzsprout channel and the podcast details and, and also the website, um, which are um, available on, on, in the descriptions also. Again, thank you very much for having me today and for, for being here, thank Meg. You. And um, I look forward to the next conversation. Thank you very much.